Truth News Network. A political party is willing to crash an entire country just to get rid of one man. What are they so afraid of? And how come nobody's asking that question? Well, one man is. In the relentless pursuit of the truth, you've reached TNN. The Truth News Network. And here's the man asking the tough questions, Dan Newman. Boy, we have a lot of questions to answer today and a lot of answers for a lot of questions for you. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Friday at TNN Live, getting set for a chilly weekend across the South. Now, it's November. Most of you that are listening from parts in upper parts of the Midwest and Canada, you're accustomed to this. In the deep south, it doesn't get cold in November. Oh my gosh, it's cold. I just went outside just minutes before starting the show, and it's really chilly, and it's damp chilly, which makes it worse. But you know what? Wherever we live, wherever we work, we're going to make the best of it. That's what you've got to do. That's what I've got to do. If you want to be living in fear, go ahead. I'm not going to join you. I don't believe in fear. Now, that doesn't mean I'm braggadocious and I think there's nothing that can harm me or hurt me. I'm human after all. But I consciously make choices not to let fear consume my life, take up my time, my days. The older you get, the more you realize how short the rest of your life is. I think it happened to me, the first realization of this was like in my late 40s, maybe right around turning 50. I just stopped and did a little analysis of my life and I realized, oh my, OMG, oh my goodness. I've got more of my life behind me than I have in front of me. And that's a stark realization. And I began to rethink things and make decisions based on more concrete things than just flying by the seat of my pants. I guess everybody, when they're young, they're prone to do that. Maybe you weren't, but I was. Got in a lot of unnecessary trouble doing that too. I guess when you're young, you think you're invincible. But none of us are. But none of us, none of us should let Our lives be consumed by fear, fear of any kind. And if you're one of those people that look at your environment every day, right around you, maybe in your state, maybe in your part of the country, maybe if you're in another country, and we have quite a few people that listen in every day from other countries, circumstances are different everywhere. But don't let the circumstances that you face every day be the sole thing that you allow yourselves to get caught up in with your thinking. Don't let negative things get you caught in a place where you're going to be fearful all the time. I don't need to tell you this, but I'll just remind you, if you stay afraid all the time, you'll never enjoy life. You'll miss so many good things, so many great relationships, and not just with family members, spouses and children, and even your extended family, not just those people, people who you interact with, people that are part of your life. Don't take any of that for granted. And if you're going to obsess about something, obsess about this one thing. What can I do better to serve the people that I love and who love me? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that as the number one thing that 
if you were going to be concerned about, that would be what you were concerned about, pouring yourself into the lives of other people. What a great idea. Hey, I want to thank you for being here on Friday. Yes, I got a ton of calls and texts yesterday. We had technical satellite issues. And if you don't know how this show works, pretty much like most podcasts work. Now, this is beamed live around the world. And to do that, we sit in our studio in Northwest Louisiana. And we turn the switch on. We go live at 9 a.m. Central every Monday through Friday. And as we speak and play songs and you hear interviews and all that kind of stuff, it turns into a stream, an Internet stream. It bounces from Shreveport, Louisiana to Dallas. Dallas, there's a satellite transfer station there. And our beam goes into that transfer station and it uploads to a satellite, and then that downloads in Seattle, Washington, Broadcast Matrix. And Broadcast Matrix hooks our show, the stream, directly to a satellite, and it beams around the world to every country that has Internet. Think about that. Arguably, we have 192 countries on the planet. Most all of those countries have internet. And so any place where there's internet, if you want this show, TNN Live, you can grab it there. Or if you're any place elsewhere on the globe and you want to listen in, or even go back later and grab a podcast and download it from places like Spotify or iHeartRadio or even Google, that technology is amazing. Well, they had a little glitch yesterday. And I apologize for that. And if you missed the show, don't do this. You can get it in full. Go back. Don't go and say, look, that day's gone behind me. There's a lot of information. In two hours, you know this if you're here all the time or much of the time. You know, we cover a lot of ground every day of the important issues of the day. Go back and get that. And when you get some chance in the next day or two, over the weekend maybe, Grab some coffee and sit down and listen to yesterday's show. And I want to thank you for doing that. We don't get this kind of technical difficulty very often. And I hope and pray, my plans are, it won't happen again. So with all of that going on and looking at a Friday and a big weekend coming up, I think you owe it to yourself to sit tight for just a little bit. Grab that cup of coffee. And in about three minutes, we're going to wade into everything that has changed overnight. (laughs) And I probably don't need to tell you, much has. A lot of important things to get into. We're going to do that with you right after this. Nobody ever loved me. You love us like. Got a real girl and she loves me a lot. And ain't no other man is going to take my spot and die. I'm so happy you're mine. Cause I'm going to love you a long time. Let me love you a long time. Let me love, let me love you a long time. Let me love, let me love you a long time. Let me love, let me love you a long time.
the September figure was revised down, as a matter of fact. And they seem to be doing that now every month. They come out and give us these employment reports that show, hey, we added a bunch of jobs. And then the next month, when it's time to talk about the month we just went through, they'll say, we got to revise the previous month's numbers down. Economists expected us to add 180,000 jobs. Well, after the September number was revised down to 297, and they first told us it was 336 jobs added in September, they only missed it by about uh, 40,000. I don't know how you do that. But anyway, 150,000 workers added to payrolls in October. But the unemployment rate ticked up. Now, you want me to analyze all that for you? (laughs) Our economy sucks. (laughs) It has been far better in recent years. All the way back a long time ago. It was really good. A long time ago. Three years ago. Before Joe Biden was elected president. Just saying. Any big news coming out of this? Well, the Fed, they say, because of these numbers today, are more than not likely going to do another interest rate hike. That's a good news if you got to borrow money or you're trying to get your house situated that you want to buy and move into. So, I don't want to know if that's good or bad. I just... I just want to make sure that when I go to the store, when I go to the gas pump, when I order something online, it doesn't skyrocket in pricing from the previous months and years. I'm sick of all this. I'm sick of buying a loaf of bread, paying the same price for it I did two years ago, but the size of the bread slice, they've reduced it by about 25% trying to hide it in the same bag, same price, and we think, hey, prices are going back down. No, you're not getting the same thing for your money. How long can we live in this mess economically? Something's got to break. And honestly, I think something may break that's not breaking on the good side. And I don't want to go there. I'm not in the fear thing. I told you that. It's not the way I live. I'm the eternal optimist. My glass is always half full. But I'm tired of it being between half full and empty. I want to fill the glass back up. What about you? So, yeah, we still have a horror show playing out every day over in the Middle East. And the latest thing this week that uh, has consumed a lot of conversation is our president not calling for a ceasefire, but calling for a pause in the fighting, Israel and Hamas. So just as the Israeli Defense Forces encircled the Hamas stronghold of Gaza City, everybody starts calling for a ceasefire, and the calls are getting louder and louder. For the first week or two after the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th, which saw the most Jews massacred in a single day since Hitler and hundreds more were taken hostage in Gaza. Calls for a ceasefire were mostly relegated to those on the far left, self-hating Jewish groups like If Not Now, that's the name of a group, 
and so-called Jewish Voice for Peace, along with the fifth column, jihad-sympathizing congressmen who comprise the House Hamas Caucus. <laughs> They've even given them a name. Those people are, as you know, Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, even though she's not Palestinian, not Jewish, but she's the author, the creator of the squad. So how our times are changing. During a campaign event on Wednesday, Jean-Pierre's boss, President Biden, he announced there his support for an IDF pause in Gaza. He didn't say ceasefire. He called for a pause. Now, when I heard about this, a couple of things came to my mind. First of all, who is he that he can demand anybody from any other country do anything? I'm Joe Biden. We're supposed to listen and just automatically jump when he says something. Even though we all know 90 seconds after he says it, he doesn't even remember saying it. But he's reading from either a note card or a teleprompter. In response to a question from JVP activist Jessica Rosenberg, a seemingly transgender woman, we talked about her the other day, introduced herself as a rabbi despite Jewish law's clear stance against female or LGBT rabbis. This is in Minnesota. There's no way to square Biden's brand new equivocation with his clear stance toward the beginning of the war. I mean, from the very beginning, Joe Biden has been pro-Israeli. Now, flip it over. October 7th, if it had been Hamas storming someplace in the United States and slaughtering 1,400 Americans, do you think our president would stand up and demand that we not retaliate against those who just killed a bunch of our people? That's what Joe Biden's doing. He's trying to tell the Israelis, we need to pause. The Biden administration is mincing words, calling it a pause instead of a ceasefire. It makes no difference to Hamas. And if it happens, a pause or a ceasefire, it only gives them one more time the advantage. Biden's obfuscation aside, the reality is his call for a pause, that's a 180-degree turn from his earlier surprisingly clarion remarks about Israel. We stand with Israel, he said over and over. To be sure, everybody should have seen this coming. Biden most secure, he must secure the Democrat Party's left flank. He's got to. Payback. Polls have suggested... Biden's strong initial support for Israel has cost him among Muslim Americans. There you go. Joe plays the politics. He watches the winds blow whatever direction they are, and he's got to feed the people that put him in office. Those Muslim Americans that in mass voted for him in 2020, a bunch of them are saying no more. Joe's reversal came quicker than even I expected. 
Early evidence shows his call for an IDF pause in Gaza has quickly percolated throughout the Democrat ecosystem. Any Israel Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, for instance, he released a statement yesterday urging Israel to immediately reconsider its approach in Gaza. How soon the blood of 1,400-plus slain Israelis by medieval Islamist death cultists, they've already forgotten it in D.C. Some of those who have been calling for a ceasefire or a pause in Gaza, they just want to see more Jews slaughtered. Seriously, what's going to happen? You think Hamas is going to honor a pause or a ceasefire? Heck no. They'll revamp, they'll redo their weapons. They'll sit there with nothing going on and be able to plan the next phase of their barbarism. Other ceasefire or pause advocates like Joe Biden or of a less nakedly genocidal bent. These leftists, a la John Lennon crooning in the abysmal song Imagine, you remember that? Foolishly think that if every side lays down their arms, it's going to automatically lead to peace. Never mind, as Dennis Prager has long pointed out, that if Israel were to ever lay down its arms, it would cease to exist the very next day. Never mind, furthermore, that there will never, ever be peace in the Levant with Hamas, a fundamentalist Sunni jihadist organization that's indistinguishable from Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Never going to consider that as part of any solution. They're not going to honor any commitments they make. They never have, except we're going to exterminate every Jew we can and wipe them off the globe. Truth is, there's an extraordinarily simple way to expedite the end of all the hostilities in Gaza. Hamas releases every hostage taken October 7th and unconditionally surrenders to Israel, just as Germany and Japan unconditionally surrendered to the Allied powers to end World War II. If Hamas would do that, the war would end tomorrow. There would be no further casualties the conversation would change a bit. It would instead shift to what the Gaza Strip will look like once freed from Hamas's jackboot. Yeah, that's a World War II reference to Germany, Hitler's jackboot thugs. Surely every reasonable person can agree it's something to look forward to. You know, that real peace thing. Now, across two successive Democrat presidential administrations, left-wing foreign policy has been bestowed with the notion of balancing powers in the Middle East. Under Obama, this took the form of undermining America's regional allies like Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and bolstering its regional foes, the Iranian regime and the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, under this president... With many of the same goons once again running foreign policy, it's taken the form of hamstringing Israel and offering aid and comfort to Hamas. And at some point, such delusions stop being merely naive and they become outright evil, if not outright stupid. Maybe both. 
It's been a long time since the surrender of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Many here in the West have forgotten what it actually takes and what it actually means to win a war. Think about that. We didn't win the Korean conflict. We didn't win in World War II. Yes, we did. Vietnam, which was like World War III to those that were in that war. We didn't win it. We didn't win in Iraq. It's time for Israel to provide a helpful reminder. We need to go back and think through all of the circumstances of those wars. And if you weren't around, I wasn't around in World War I or II. I vaguely remember a little bit of the Korean conflict, but I was born in 1953 and it was going on at that time. It lasted three or four years and it was never a real world war. But the people on planet Earth are not getting led, are not getting served by the governments they have over them. Case in point, you may have already heard about this, but this morning and last night, the media world, the leftist media world, went nuts again about new House Speaker. And Mike Johnson, I've known him, since before he ran for Congress back in 2016. He's a man of modest means. He is a constitutional attorney, and much of the work he did before he got into, he served one stint in the Louisiana State Legislature, and then he got in the House of Representatives, which is very expensive, by the way, to do. But when you, and you can look this up, don't just trust me for saying this. You can go Google and find his financial filings, which every member of Congress has to do every year, and you can look at his assets compared to his liabilities. He has a negative net worth. Now, that doesn't mean he's a bad guy or a poor business guy. It doesn't mean any of that. Assets evaluations change from year to year. That house that you had... Uh, appraised a couple of years ago when you bought it, it may be worth twice what it was when you bought it, or it could be worth half of what it was when you bought it. Either way, your asset basis could go up or go down. And regarding bank accounts and savings accounts and investments and stuff like that, there's a certain threshold in the law about how far you have to go before your cash assets, like checking accounts and saving accounts, have got to be reported. And so overnight, some of the left media folks who are digging to find or doing their best to find dirt on Mike Johnson, they found something that just blew him away. He doesn't have a checking account that meets the bottom threshold to report. So he doesn't even have a, a checking account on his list of assets. I don't know what the number is you have to get to before you report it, but he's just a regular old guy. And that has become a huge story. <laughs> let, let me just read you this headline. Claim that Speaker Johnson lives paycheck to paycheck, 
makes him relatable, says defenders. Relatable. In other words, we've become accustomed as Americans to have members of Congress and Senate are multimillionaires just because they're senators or their House of Representatives. And yesterday, as you can imagine, when the news went out around the leftist media world, oh, oh, stories, picking at, laughing at, Mike Johnson just went nuts. Some Americans rallied behind him after a report nitpicked his personal finances and put a spotlight on the possibility that, oh my gosh, he lives paycheck to paycheck. The Daily Beast, that bastion of conservatism, right? (laughs) They published a report headline, Does New Speaker of the House Mike Johnson Have a Bank Account? Well, he does, but it didn't reach the financial deposit threshold where he had to report it. And it featured a subhead that said he has never listed a bank account on his financial disclosure. In fact, on his newest disclosure, he doesn't list a single asset at all. Over the course of seven years, Johnson has never reported a checking or savings account in his name, nor in the name of his wife, Kelly, or any of his kids, four kids. In fact, he doesn't appear to have money stashed in any investments, with his latest filing covering 2022 showing zero assets, whatever. And this story writer, Roger Sollenberger for the Daily Beast, he said this, of course it's unlikely Johnson doesn't actually have a bank account. What's more likely is Johnson lives paycheck to paycheck, so much so that he doesn't have enough money in his bank account to trigger the checking account disclosure rules for members of Congress. O-M-G. Now they're going to turn this into something negative. He's not qualified He hasn't learned how to cheat and put a bunch of money in his accounts. A huge percentage of the people that responded on social media, most of them rushed to Speaker Johnson's defense with everyone from elected officials to cable news pundits responding when the article was shared on social media. The Daily Beast is furious that Speaker Johnson isn't rich, corrupt or rich from being corrupt. He doesn't have shady business deals. He doesn't trade stocks as a congressman. That's Representative Matt Gates of Florida, by the way, who comes from a multimillionaire family. Cry more, I guess, was his advice. Representative Chip Roy from Texas added, so to extent accurate, He's like a lot of Americans right now, while also navigating raising a large family. What a monster he is. Rep. Lauren Boebert from Colorado wrote, So the Daily Beast wants people to be mad that Speaker Johnson isn't corrupt and hasn't used his office to enrich himself. This is how out of touch these guys are. And then author Tim Carney joked, Who let in the poor folks? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we call them voters, Americans, people that are living under these crappy circumstances those on the left have shoved down our throats. Two-thirds of Americans right now can't even afford a $400 emergency. Two-thirds. 
Members of Congress owning stocks is something everyone from AOC to Josh Hawley are against for obvious reasons. Johnson is eligible for a congressional pension at age 62. That's Joe Concha reporting that. Of course, we could have the Pelosi stock trades completely outperforming the S&P year after year while buying and selling companies that benefited from bills passed under Speaker Pelosi's house. Yes, that would be far better than being an average person, correct? Charles Payne, Fox News, he's one of my favorite economists in the world. And he has done a really good job. And he communicates how regular Americans can do the same thing all the time, plain spoken. He believes this examination of Johnson's finances is a sign of the crazy times we live in. Crazy times, he said, when some see it as a strike against lawmakers who are not actively using insider knowledge to make millions while serving as quote-unquote public servants. Worse than lobbying upon retirement is getting paid millions in campaign contributions while you're in office. Town Hall columnist Kurt Schleister added, I think we need more rich people in Congress. Did I get your point correctly? Popular X account, formerly known as Twitter accounts, the Foo, F-O-O, posted this. Imagine if you were this outraged about public servants being multimillionaires. Many others use the Daily Beast report to take a shot at Joe Biden and the situation surrounding his son. Hunter, you knew this was going to happen. <laughs> Monica Crowley wrote, I guess Speaker Johnson could get rich by selling out America to the Chinese like Biden did, right? <laughs> The Federalist senior editor, David Harsony, he posted, does he have a son who can set up an influence trading racket and kick 10% back to him over every transaction? That seems pretty lucrative. In other words, it'd be better if he had inexplicably become a millionaire on the public dime like Nancy or Joe. Then we know he was both corrupt and more importantly, perfect for the job. I mean, it goes on and on. I could read you 20 pages of these quips. Americans, folks, we get this. We understand this. There are far too many of us that are struggling to do things like pay the car payment, pay the rent or the mortgage, buy enough groceries and gasoline to keep your nose above water. If you were here day before yesterday, I told you about, I have a good friend that is in the process of retiring from the FBI, and he's been in management, field office directors. He just moved his family back to the U.S. They were several years in the FBI operation in in, uh, Bangkok, Thailand. And he's a great Christian. He's a very conservative man, honest as the day is long, and he's a close friend of ours. In fact, we were together last night at our youngest daughter's birthday celebration. Corey celebrated 47 years old, our baby girl is. Anyway, I asked him the other day, I guess it was two days after Mike was 
was named the House Speaker. I asked him how life changes for that, and he just burst into laughter. He said, he said, Congressman Johnson's a regular blue-collar guy. I mean, he's one of us. And he said his life, even before <laughs> anything really happened, his kids in Shreveport, Louisiana, several of them were playing on a baseball team, had games going on. And minutes after he was confirmed as House Speaker, this FBI guy said Secret Service people were immediately at that baseball park protecting the House Speaker's kids. He said, Mike will never go anywhere alone. Anybody that wants to have an interview with him, wants him to come speak and do something, it has to go through the White House, the Secret Service office. He travels on a U.S. taxpayer-provided jet, and he has 24-7 security. And I said, how many people do the um, Secret Service, do they assign to somebody like the House Speaker? And he said, he'll be surrounded, many you won't see, but he'll be surrounded by 50 to 60 people 24-7. And I thought about that. Man, that seems a little extravagant, certainly very expensive for we taxpayers. And he reminded me, did you forget? He's second in line in the secession to the presidency. I hadn't thought about that. In other words, Mike Johnson's life is way different. But you know what? Watching him over the last week, week and a half, and knowing him for these years, I've known him personally and met with him, had him on the phone, gone to meetings, etc. It's no surprise to me. I voted for him. I supported him. I think he's going to be a great House Speaker. And when he gave his acceptance speech, Marianne and I were sitting here in, the, in our home watching it, and about halfway through, I looked at her and I said, sounds Reaganish to me. Sounds Reaganish to me. And the intent of my saying that was pretty obvious to Marianne. You remember, many of you, most of you, maybe all of you, remember when Ronald Reagan was for those eight years, U.S. president. And the same kind of stuff came out of his mouth as we're hearing come out of Mike's mouth. Reagan never cut corners. He never fudged. He was plain spoken. He was a man of the people. And I'm not saying anything about Mike Johnson and the presidency. I'm just saying he is not the typical politician. Nor was Ronald Reagan who, by the way, was one of the best presidents the United States ever had. He single-handedly convinced the president of Russia to tear down the Berlin Wall, which marked the end of communism in Russia. And you know why that worked? He was honest, and people believed him. What's wrong with that? I pass through the trees. I leave behind the mountains. I weave in the air. I fly over the birds. And I wish when I complete my journey, I leave behind 
a better world. Honda Civic Hybrid, India's first hybrid car with iVTEC engine. Leave behind a better world. Hi, I'm Jet Williams. Even though I never knew my father, Hank Williams, his legacy taught me the meaning of lending a helping hand. That's why I support the Orphan Foundation of America. OFA is committed to providing education, mentoring, and a workplace readiness for thousands of teens aging out of the foster care system. With the help of OFA's support programs, these young people can go to college and trade school, graduate, and make the leap from foster care to success. To learn how you can help, visit Orphan.org. Des Moines HelpWanted.com salutes the employee of the month. The one employee you can't live without. The others, let's just call them Dave. Dave, we need to talk about your sick days. What seems to be the problem, Mr. Employee of the Month? Last week you were out all five days. I was sick. Thanks for checking in. You posted on social media that you were at a comedy club on Monday. Laughter is the best medicine. An outdoor barbecue on Tuesday. Feed a cold, starve a fever, or whichever one needs to be fed. That's the one I had. Okay, Wednesday you took a selfie. Hashtag faking sick. That was supposed to say freaking sick. Thursday you were at an amusement park. Somebody stole my phone. They stole your phone and uploaded photos of you at an amusement park. Yes, fake news. Friday, you tailgated in the employee parking lot. Friday's basically the weekend. Everyone knows that. If you don't mind hiring Dave's, go to the huge national job boards. That's probably what you'll get. But if you want more employees of the month, go where local job seekers find good local jobs. We don't discriminate against people named Dave. Dave is a common name, fun to say, and so we're using it as a catch-all for lackluster employees everywhere. Please don't write us to tell us you were insulted by this ad. That would be a real Dave move, Dave. Too much spin on your plate? How about a diet of truth? The Truth News Network sets your table. And here again to serve it up is Dan Newman. Before we get away from things regarding our new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, think about this big hurdle that is facing him. And it is the same hurdle that got the previous House Speaker in deep water. Kevin McCarthy lost his job in part because of the continuing resolution debacle to keep from default on government debt. So what's Mike going to do? What's Congressman Johnson going to do? What's Speaker Johnson going to do? He floated the idea of what he called a laddered continuing resolution, which is a novel idea. It's a way to avoid a potential government shutdown on November 17th. Circle that day. Two weeks from today, that's when the 45-day stopgap funding law expires. So what does this mean? A laddered CR. Potentially, you would do a continuing resolution that extends individual pieces of the appropriations process, individual bills. The idea, I mean, it makes sense to me. You don't have to do everything because we don't pay every day, pay for everything. It's staged. Your bills don't all come due on the same day, right? So yours is a laddered project, paying your bills. The idea could be a lifesaver for Johnson, who could soon find himself between the same rock and hard place as Kevin McCarthy, the choice between allowing the government to shut down for lack of money and passing a stopgap spending bill, which is basically just kicking the can down the road, right? So Mike's been one week now as Speaker of the House. He's racing to complete all of the 12 spending bills required by law before the deadline on the 17th. 
When that's complete, discrepancies between the two sets of bills got to be ironed out between the Senate and the House. That's not going to happen by November 17th, and Speaker Johnson confirmed that. We've run out of clock on this, he said. The clock already ran out one time. As the fiscal year came to a close on the 30th of September, none of the 12 spending bills were signed into law. In the final moments before midnight, then-Speaker McCarthy presented a 45-day stopgap funding bill, continuing resolution, which was passed by bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. That cost McCarthy his job. How so? Eight Republicans organized his ouster for what they saw as a collaboration with Democrats and an extension of the Biden administration's spending plan. So with time running out again, Johnson had hoped to pass a second, longer-term stopgap funding bill that would cover government spending into the new year. Here's a quote. My initial idea, he said, was to extend that to January 18th to get us past the sort of like Christmas rush and things that typically jam us in the House, he said. And that was a reference to the massive $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill that Democrats passed on a party-line vote just before the 2022 holidays. That's what Americans got the sickest about. We're tired of them not in regular order. Every proposal regarding spending is a standalone. It's supposed to be a standalone bill. It's presented by the House Speaker to the various committees it involves. They debate it. They get witnesses, and they propose amendments, pass some in the committees. Then if it passes out of the committees, it goes to the full floor for full debate. Also consider amendments in the full House. After all of that is agreed to, they vote on the whole bill. If it passes, then it goes to the Senate, and they were supposedly doing the same thing on their side. Under Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, and Nancy Pelosi, then Speaker of the House, they did away with regular order. All bills were crafted behind closed doors by their minions, Nancy's and Schumer's minions, and they would only put the bills out for the entirety of the Congress and the Senate to see usually less than 24 hours before they had to be voted on. Thousand pages of bills that all dealt with spending trillions of dollars that they borrowed for you and I to be obligated to pay back. Doing it the constitutional way that I talked about, and Congressman Mike Johnson on this show has talked about several times, it's called regular order. One of his promises, we're going back to regular order, and he's done just that. But he he was handed a bad time. He had no time to get it done. By law, we have one job, and that is to pass 12 appropriations bills and a budget. We aren't doing that, which is why we're $33 trillion in debt. I won't vote to let Congress continue kicking the can down the road when we should have been working on this in August. We can't keep playing games with Americans' hard-earned money. That's coming from East Tennessee lawmaker Tim Burchett in a statement. 
this laddered CR might be a more palatable solution to hardliners. I think we can build some consensus around that, Johnson said. It's an interesting idea, but not one I can recall being done before. That's Mark Goldwyn, Senior Vice President at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. The idea is common in the world of finance, however. That's according to Peter Earle, who's an economist at the American Institute for Economic Research. In the financial world, a laddered bond portfolio is one that is structured so payments are staggered throughout a year rather than arriving in two giant lump sums semi-annually payments. Applied to a continuing resolution, this concept would spread the due dates over a period of time rather than having all the bills come due on one day. The idea is that each can be negotiated individually with differences worked through before moving on to the next. A lot of people believe this will permit keeping the government open throughout the process. However, those 12 cascading deadlines could create the possibility that a particular area of the government could be shut down if the funding covered by that bill wasn't in place. Beyond that, the process could become increasingly partisan. Oh my gosh, partisanship in Congress? We can't have that, can we? Beyond that, the process could be really, really tough if we don't get this laddered thing in place. I can envision a scenario in which each individual discussion gets bogged down, as well as one in which cuts or other changes made to one bill are met by mounting hostility in subsequent negotiations. Again, that's this economist Earl. The 12 bills cover these departments and their related agencies. 12 different appropriations bills. Agricultural, Rural Development, Food and Drug Administration. That's one. The second, Commerce, Justice, and Science. The third, Defense, to standalone. The fourth, Energy and Water Development. The fifth, Financial Services and General Government. The sixth, Homeland Security. The seventh, Interior, Environment, and Related Agency. The eighth, Labor, Health, and Human Services and Education. The ninth, the Legislative Branch. The tenth, Military Construction and Veterans Affairs. The eleventh, State Foreign Operations. And the twelfth, Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development. So it's not clear yet how the latter approach would work because Johnson gave only a sketch of the idea. He said, I'll unpack for you what that means here in the coming days. So just to kind of give you an idea of where they stand, the House has passed six of the 12 spending bills already, so there are six more. They're expected to vote on two other ones by the end of business today. Together, these would account for $1.5 trillion in spending, or 86% of the expected $1.79 trillion total. The Senate has passed three spending bills, accounting for $279 billion. And whatever they come out with, it's going to have to be meshed, pulled together. And then if they reach a consensus between the Senate and the House, it'll go to the White House for Joe to sign. Now, some of the big news yesterday was the House passed the bill to send relief money 
to Israel alone. Remember what Biden asked for and demanded. He didn't ask for it. He demanded a big, big check for Ukraine and a $14 billion check for Israel. But it was all going to be together in one check. Well, the House said, nope, we're not going down that road. And they passed a Israel bill in total. And you remember what Congressman Mike Johnson, when he became House Speaker and he gave his speech, his first speech on the floor, you remember what he said about this spending stuff? (laughs) He said, we're going to go to regular order, which means, regular order means any bill that's even considered in the House and it involves spending, the spending's going to have to be paid for before they pass the bill. Now, what does that mean? You don't borrow money. Now, our federal government, they can't live that way, can they? They never have, or they haven't in many years. They don't even think anything about, oh, let's spend this over here and spend this over here, and we'll worry about paying it back later. And so the Israeli relief bill It was passed, by the way, in true bipartisanship because 12 Democrats crossed over and voted for it, too. Oh, my gosh. What do you think is going to happen to those people? Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House, if he hadn't already, he's going to be sending these people, those 12, some really ugly notes for joining into those horrible Republicans that They don't want to give Ukraine a blank check. And they want to take money from some other part of the government to pay for the spending. Well, guess where it came from? Those 25 trillion IRS agencies, people, the new people coming in, they took money out of that, did those in the House, and this entire $14 billion that they approved yesterday for Israel, it's paid for by already allocated money. (laughs) Go figure. And of course, the president's made very clear, he's not going to sign that. I'm not going to sign that. I'm not going to give money to a cause that I don't believe in and take it away from the IRS. We got to have those 80,000 new employees over there, don't we? Here we go. (laughs) And so we have a a stalemate, meanwhile, over in Ukraine. We don't even talk about the Ukrainian and Russian war much anymore, do we? We just simply don't do it. The war over in Ukraine has reached a great warlike stalemate. The commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces made a bunch of references to the stalemate of the First World War in some of his comments on the state of the present war against Russia's attempted occupation of Ukraine. The comments alarm some in the West that are hoping for a rapid conclusion of the war, given the enormous expense to NATO governments so far and the statement that without major developments, no progress is to be made by either side. This general, his name is Valery Zelushny, made the comments in an interview with the Globalist Centrist Economist magazine, publishing with it a nine-page personal essay on the war, which says, 
a non-trivial advance in Ukrainian capability is required. I don't understand that. A non-trivial advance in Ukrainian capability is required. And saying within it, quote, just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us in a stalemate. There will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough, he said. So he dismissed the utility of the NATO-led planning for the counteroffensive, which is at best stumbled and at worst failed. The general told the magazine Western Doctrine is for highly mobile forces engaging in maneuver warfare. Now we're learning all about waging war on somebody else in this Ukrainian conflict, aren't we? In the four months of counteroffensive so far at NATO standard speeds of 30 kilometers progress a day, the general sardonically remarked his forces should have reached Crimea to have fought in Crimea, to return from Crimea, and to have gone back in and out again. Instead, according to this article, five months into its counteroffensive, Ukraine has managed to advance by just 17 kilometers. That's 10 miles. How many billions has that cost you and us? All of us. We've paid the tab. So we in the West have supplied large numbers of armored cars, main battle tanks. Hopes of a rapid punch through Russian lines evaporated as the degree to which they had successfully mined the approaches to their positions become clearer. Describing the process of turning away from the NATO doctrine, expensively instilled in Ukraine's new armies in a matter of mere months after he found it didn't suit the war that he was actually fighting, the general described how he turned to study the tactics of the First World War. And I won't go into all the details, but he said, and before I got even halfway through the book, I realized that it is exactly where we are because just like then, the level of our technological development today has put both us and our enemies in a stupor. Let me ask you a question. You know a pretty good deal of the information about Ukraine now. And we understand Vladimir Putin, he's always wanted to take Ukraine back and add it back into Russia. And he demands all the time that that belongs to the old Soviet Union, does Ukraine. We need a real leader from some other country to step in and get Putin and Zelensky together in a room and agree There are three of us in here. The arbiter, whoever that is going to be, Zelensky and Putin, and we're going to come up with some ideas to end this, and we're none of us going to leave the room unless and until that happens. That needs to happen. Too many people are dying. Too many billions, tens of billions of dollars are being spent on a war that nobody has an upper hand. Well over a year into this thing, Now, how can they do that and get away with it? And we're looking at a bigger, possibly worse, far worse war to come together in the Middle East. 
It started between Hamas and Israel, but we know the proxies all added in. Israel, in the war part of this, is basically on their own. But on the other side, Iran's the big bank up at the top of all of this with their proxies like Hezbollah, of course, Hamas, and uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, and a bunch of other jihadist organizations. This could escalate into a real world war. We need a leader. Well, we have one. We have Joe Biden. Joe Biden is out there now. He's crying for not a ceasefire because he doesn't want to piss off the Israeli people and American real conservatives. He doesn't even realize or he doesn't care that if it's a ceasefire or a pause, it's only going to embolden Israel's enemy, Hamas. They'll just retool and come back out and start their barbarism all over again. They don't care about the right stuff. Just because you think something's right doesn't mean it's right. Just because you think something's wrong doesn't mean it's wrong. But always get the truth about right and wrong here at TNN, the Truth News Network. Does it matter to you that all our chefs are well-trained? Or that our kitchens are both SLSI and GMP certified? That we freshly bake goodies throughout the day? Well, it matters to us to know that your family will enjoy every bite. At Kiehl's, we're fresh because of what we do. But more than that, we're fresh because of you. It's Super Salmon Days down at Fish Brothers. For a limited time, bring in any fish and get a child salmon entree free. You heard right. Bring in any fish and get a free child salmon entree. And I mean any fish. Got a swordfish lying around? Bring it in. Got a goldfish you're sick of feeding? Bring it in. Got a fish that's been sitting in the sun for a few days? Bring it in. We'll throw it in with the rest of them. What we do with the fish is nobody's business but ours. Just enjoy your salmon $8.99 with our famous stew. So, welcome on into Fish Brothers Seafood-themed restaurant, where everything's a great catch. Except the shrimp. Oh, that was a sweet song. If you don't know me by now, back in the old days, that was called belly rubbing music. You danced with your girlfriend or your wife real, real close, belly rubbing. If you don't know me by now, what a great song. Hey, if you haven't looked at the front page story today at truthnewsnet.org, we dropped a truth on America that is nauseating. I've gotten dozens of texts and emails this morning about it. The title of the story is Taliban-Controlled Afghanistan Gets $80 million cash in infusion form every two weeks. Taliban. Can you believe? We're involved in that. And, of course, the screen for everything is it goes to the United Nations, and they're the ones that send out the money. Taliban-controlled Afghanistan gets $80 million cash infusion every two weeks. 
you want the details. I want you to I want you to see for yourself. Go to the homepage of www.truthnewsnet.org. Truthnewsnet.org and read that thing. It'll just make you matter. It will. So moments ago I was talking about we need a real leader to come in and get the three people, the arbiter, whoever that might be, Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, get them all in one room and come to some kind of agreement so that we can stop this. Putin is drowning. Do you know that they're actually conscripting or drafting 60-year-old Russian men to go to the front lines? They've run out of all the normal military-age Russians for them to get in their army and air force. It's getting pretty desperate on both sides of it. So who is a possible person out there? If we just start thinking about names of people, Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite commentators, he's in the uh, Hoover Think Tank out in Stanford, California, very conservative. He's one of those great thinkers. He had some thoughts on uh, somebody that might do a good job because they've done a good job somewhere else. I think Donald Trump, to his credit, showed us with Soleimani and with ISIS, he destroyed them. And Iran did not do anything. And I, 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 there would be no way Hamas was doing this between 2017 and January of 21. They had a small war, but they never did anything like this. And I don't think Vladimir Putin would have gone into Ukraine. And I don't think that China would have sent a balloon and, and just because they he was unpredictable and they thought the United States would be very, uh, it would be a dangerous thing to tempt it. And I think we want to get back to that. It doesn't mean we have to have the Trumpian rhetoric, but he set a model. I think everybody says, wow, 2014, uh, Biden administration, they moved in Ukraine, the Russians did. 2017 to 20, they did not. Why? Uh, Iran talking like they're going to just do this and do this and do this to us. Suddenly, for four years, they're quiet. And everybody said, if you move the embassy to Jerusalem, if you say that the Golden Heights shall be Israeli, if you cut off the $700 million to the Palestinian, if you say that you're not going to give one dime to Hamas, you can't do that. And he did it all, and nothing happened. And that was because we were strong and reliable. And I think we'll be that way again. And I think once we, if we were to do that, then allies like Australia can be assured that they don't have to go out on a limb. And that's the real, that's the real issue, isn't it? Because when we step back, then Japan and Australia and Taiwan, and they're confronted with a China that will say, look, the United States is in decline. You better cut a deal with us or at least understand that we're here. And then it, we can't ask countries that don't have the wherewithal to stand up to these global bullies. And when we step back, we put them in an impossible situation. But when we step up and we say, we're not asking you to be at the point of the steer, but we're asking all of us to have shared interest and to sacrifice together in deterring these people, then we're always surprised how many allies we have. I, and I don't know why we don't understand that lesson. Some presidents understand it, some don't. But you can't put allies in a position where they have to profess 100 
and 10% solidarity with the United States when the United States doesn't believe in itself and is going to put them in jeopardy for that for that fealty. And that's just a, a law of diplomacy. And I think to our blame, we didn't understand that. We we used to understand it, but we we lost that. I think it'll come back again. That we won't do that again. I'm hoping. A great perspective there from Victor Davis Hanson. I mean, honestly, we should be looking for leaders that have proven track records of being good at leading. That's not the case with Joe Biden. Remember, throughout his senatorial career, he was busted all the time about lying and lying when he didn't need to or he didn't have to. It wasn't like he made a mistake. He purposely lied all the time. We have played on this show, we probably have 40 minutes of sound bites through his career in which he told lies. Many of them, he told them over and over and over again. In fact, it was so obvious he had to withdraw in one of his previous runs to win the nomination to run for president. He's not a leader. Just being blunt. He's not a leader, and he foments divisiveness because he tries to appease the person who's making the most noise in Joe's ear any day. He's trying to come up and be considered by the world as a peacemaker, as an arbiter. And he's anything but that. He is so divisive. And he thinks he's doing a really good job. Honestly, now remember my stand is, I prayed for him this morning. I pray for him every day. I don't care who's driving the plane, who's in the left seat where the pilot sits. I don't care who it is. If I'm on the plane, I want him to be really successful flying that plane to where we're all going. We want to get there and get there safely. But Joe is a liar. He's proven to be over and over again when he didn't have to do it. It's almost like he's pathological and he just, oh, I'm just going to do it. Why? Because I can do it. That's not leadership. Not at all. Trump, on the other hand, Trump has got success at dealing with egregious, horrible, national and international enemies. Davis talked about Soleimani when they killed that U.S. journalist. Trump immediately droned Soleimani, the most powerful military man in Iran, and he not only did that, he told Iran afterwards, if you retaliate against that, you will pay a massive price. And they didn't do anything after that at all. Iran didn't. You know why? They believe Trump because Trump keeps his word. Oh, my gosh. You can't be saying Donald Trump is a good guy. I'm from South Louisiana. If something out there is quacking and waddling, it's always a duck. How much does a duck have to swim before you believe, hey, that's really a duck? Trump didn't just talk about it. Trump did it. 
He learned how to do that from growing up in New York City, building a building empire in Queens, one of the roughest boroughs that they have in New York. And he dealt with some of the most evil people in business, and he related to them. They related to him. And blue-collar Americans, back when he was running for president in 2015, 2016, they recognized themselves in Donald Trump. A blue-collar guy, yeah, he had a lot of money, He was, but he made a lot of money. He did things practic- practicably. It made sense. He made some mistakes in business. Who's been in business for a long time and hasn't? You trust people. You bring people in. Sometimes you make bad choices on people. Sometimes you make bad choices when you're doing regular business operations. It happens. But you balance it out. Donald Trump's a good manager. I'm just saying. He's a good manager. So meanwhile, back in our media world, back in our Democrat leftist nation in which we live, two New York Times journalists, two of them, have signed a letter blaming Israel for genocide and apartheid. These are New York Times journalists. Now, what's this all about? Jasmine Hughes and Jamie Lauren Keels, both are writers for the New York Times. They were signatories on an October 26th letter from the group Writers Against the War on Gaza. Just listen to the title, the group, Writers Against the War on Gaza. Now, when did somebody start a war on Gaza and why? During the wee hours of the morning, October the 7th, unprovoked, Hamas slaughtered 1,400 Israeli civilians, 1,400, and Israel responded. And so they're calling that the response, a war on Gaza. These are supposed to be intelligent writers, people that know the business, They know news. This letter also cited death statistics that haven't been verified. Israel's war against Gaza is an attempt to conduct genocide against the Palestinian people. This war did not begin on October 7th. However, the last 19 days, the Israeli military has killed over 6,500 Palestinians. Hamas and the Palestinians don't even give that number. But the letter says the 6,500 includes more than 2,500 children and wounded over 17,000. Further claiming that Israel stole the land from the Palestinians, these people are professionals. Have you bothered to go look up the history between Israel, the modern-day Israel, and the Palestinian people, and the ground in which everybody over there lives? Let me tell you what you'll find out if you'll go look for a non-political, factual outlay of what happened. How did Gaza happen to become owned by Palestinians? 
Do you know the story? Israel gave them Gaza. For decades, Israel owned Gaza, the Gaza Strip. You know the part that is on the Mediterranean, the best part, the most lucrative financial part of Western Israel. They gave, Israel gave that land to the Palestinian civilian population. So how did it go from there to where it is today? Well, guess what? Hamas Hamas comes in and they prop up and they do an election and the Palestinian people elected Hamas to be the government of Gaza. That's how this all happened. There were no fences. There were no just two or three entries and exits in or out of Gaza into Israel until Hamas started being Hamas. Then Israel had to protect itself. Facts, folks. Facts. Further claiming that Israel stole the land from Palestinians, the letter went on to call the country an apartheid state designed to privilege Jewish citizens at the expense of Palestinians, heedless of the many Jewish people, both in Israel and across the area, who oppose their own conscription in an ethno-nationalist project. The letter concluded with a call for a boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. In 2019, Breitbart reported that Hughes had made numerous anti-Semitic comments even after the Times hired her. What are you talking about now? In this story, this letter that they sent, this was included, quote, we act alongside other writers, scholars, and artists who've expressed solidarity with the Palestinian cause, drawing inspiration from the Palestinian spirit of Samud, steadfastness, and resistance. Since 2004, the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel has advocated for organizations to join a a boycott of institutions representing the Israeli state or cultural institutions complicit with its apartheid regime. Jasmine Hughes, an associate editor of the New York Times Magazine, has made a bunch of racist and anti-Semitic comments on social media over a multi-year span. A number of The tweets came from Hughes' personal account, which is associated with her Times email after she was hired by the outlet in April 2015 and continued well into 2017. Breitbart has been able to confirm the authenticity of the tweets, which are still visible on Hughes' page at the time of publication of this story. While Twitter has not officially verified Hughes' account, Her official New York Times website biography links to that account, confirming it is in fact hers. You can't make this stuff up. The media, the mainstream media in the United States are little more than the mouthpieces of hardcore leftist 
politician, wannabe, credible media reporter and editor, wannabe, no substance whatsoever. They function from the perspective of hate, anger, and hatred. Anybody that thinks this one thing doesn't deserve to even be governed. They believe that a population of people do not deserve to even breathe air and should be exterminated. And today we have two New York Times journalists that feel that exact way. And they're still on the payroll. Lowe's knows you're a craftsman guy. You have a lot of tools. Tools for everything you've done around the house. But there's the moment you realize your new project means new tools. When tool guys need new tools, they start with Lowe's. The new home of Craftsman. I'm a Verizon engineer, and today we're turning on 5G across the country, including right here in New York City. With the coverage of 5G nationwide and in more and more cities, the unprecedented performance of ultra-wideband. It will change your phone and how businesses do everything. I'm proud because we didn't build it the easy way. We built it right. This is the 5G America's been waiting for, only from Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available only in parts of select cities. 5G nationwide available in 1,800 plus cities. Welcome back to the King Value Radio Network. I'm your host, Sandy. And I'm your other host, Carl. Sandy, we are getting loads of calls today about the fresh new $1 Double Crispy Cheesy Burger. Well, hello. With two flame-broiled patties, crispy onions, and cheesy sauce for only a buck, that's no surprise. Jim from Tucson, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, guys. I just want to say I took your advice, went to Burger King, I got a new Double Crispy Cheesy Burger for a buck. I couldn't be happier. Oh, congratulations. Say, Jim, what was your favorite part of the delicious new Double Crispy Cheesy Burger, the Flame Fresh Taste. Well, I'll tell you, it had two big flame-broiled patties, plus it had crispy onions and cheesy sauce, too. It was really delicious. Oh, don't forget the price, Jim. Oh, yeah, and it only costs a dollar. It's probably the best purchase I ever made. Probably, Jim. Okay, definitely. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. There it is. Get the new Double Crispy Cheesy Burger with double the Flame Fresh Taste. In a world of weapons-grade stupidity, your defense is the truth. TNN. Wow, we only have less than 40 minutes left in the show. I've got so much information I want to bring to you. You remember the George Floyd debacle that happened. It set the United States on fire. I mean, literally, Minneapolis got torn to pieces. Tens of billions of damage done to property. People's lives, uh, financial lives were totally destroyed permanently, and it had to do with the George Floyd quote-unquote murder by Minneapolis policeman Derek Chauvin. You remember that? Well, there's some new evidence in that. We mentioned it, I guess, one day last week. But more has come out, and it's looking like George Floyd wasn't murdered. Hmm, have you heard this story? Megan Kelly had a special guest on, and they did the details. You got to listen to this. Let's start 
with Derek Chauvin, the man, the cop convicted of second degree murder in connection with the death of George Floyd. Of course, everyone remembers the story. That's what he was convicted of among other charges. Now he's serving a 22 year sentence and there's news on this case. At the moment, his lawyers are trying to be to get the case heard at the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of Minnesota decided not to hear their appeal. So now they're going to the court of last resort, the U.S. Supreme Court trying to say, please, please, please hear our appeal and give us a new trial. So we'll get to that in a minute. But in that context, like uh, as that's happening, something else is happening, which is Amy Sweezy. She's our age, I think the three of us are about the same age. She's a 1995 graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School. And um, she was a prosecutor in this district attorney's office that went after Derek Chauvin in Minnesota for 28 years. She's tried over 100 felony jury trials. So she knows what she's doing, including first degree murder cases. She specializes in, among other cases, police use of force cases. Um, She teaches law school, all this stuff. Now, she is suing her old boss at the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, alleging, I think it's sexual harassment, that he sexually harassed her, sex discrimination and retaliation, Um, right? And yet, and in the context of this civil litigation, she has made some extraordinary allegations on the record about what kind of behavior he's guilty of and what he was saying and doing while running, in particular, the George Floyd case, the the case against Derek Chauvin. She says at her deposition, which is sworn, she's under oath, that this guy, uh, the DA, uh, was aware of a conversation she had with the medical examiner whose name was Andrew Baker. And that the day after George Floyd's death, she, Amy Swayze, had a conversation with the medical examiner, Andrew Baker. And Andrew Baker said the following, quote, um, well, this is her describing it. He called me later in the day after I'd asked him to perform the autopsy. And he told me after doing the autopsy, there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation, said Miss Sweezy. He said to me, she went on, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence does not match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? And then he said, this is the kind of case that ends careers. Uh, Andrew Baker responded, the medical examiner saying, I cannot comment. But his representative says that he stands by the autopsy report and his televised testimony, both of which are publicly available. Now, many are saying this proves that Derek Chauvin did not murder George Floyd in any way, that this this medical examiner knew it, that there were no signs of asphyxiation nor any injury to the vital structures of his neck, no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation, and, and that last comment is the killer. What happens when the evidence doesn't match up to the public, public narrative? So, Jana, what, if anything, does this do to the case and specifically to this appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court to get Derek Chauvin a new trial? So much to dive into here, Megan. This is really bombshell evidence because on a, a number of levels, it proves, if true, 
a malicious prosecution. It proves, uh, disproves the fact that there was any sort of, uh, that this was basically uh, a homicide. Uh, so it proves that Derek Chauvin and others and company should not have been charged at all, certainly not the way they were charged. And it proves that this was going to be a conviction at all costs kind of prosecution based on the climate of what was going on across the country, based on the climate about uh, how people all of a sudden had to hate all police, especially white police. It proves that Derek Chauvin, if true, was absolutely railroaded. Now, the interesting thing is that really didn't come out. I mean, Eric Nelson did, the defense attorney did try to raise that uh, in the course of his cross-examination, didn't really right. hit a home run with it. It will be part of the appeal to the Supreme Court, uh, even though it wasn't part of the trial. They can bring up this new evidence when they make their pitch to the Supreme Court. But at the very least, I don't think it stopped there. This is new evidence. And they should probably try to reverse course and start all over again to the extent that the Minnesota allows them to do that, because this is really huge. So she raises a good point, Arthur, that they did try. They knew, as I read the transcripts, some of this. They knew from the medical examiner's report some of this, but they didn't know all of it. I don't see anything where they knew he was saying the actual evidence does not match up with the story that they're telling the public. That's devastating. You know, as a defense attorney, if you found that coming from another DA talking to the your medical examiner, as the defense attorney, you'd be like, I'm doing cartwheels. You'd be so thrilled. But as far as I can tell, uh, they did not, Derek Chauvin's lawyer did not have access to that because it's only been unearthed here in this civil lawsuit. I don't think it's going to be enough. I mean, what they what they write in or what they're basing part of their appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States of America on is that the jurors were in a position when there was not a change of venue that if they found Chauvin not guilty, there would have been riots in the street again. So they really had no choice, which is a pretty powerful argument. But just mm-hmm. what what an appellate court could say to get themselves out of it is – Look, the jury heard substantially significant evidence that that the medical examiner said, yeah, "I don't think he, I don't think he was choked to death. I, you know, it, it, that was he died of a of asphyxiation, but there's no injury to the neck." What I found very interesting, by he the, didn't uh, die of, I, of asphyxiation. Did not die of asphyxiation, oh. and the and the medical examiner testified to that. And what I found very interesting, though, Megan from the packet your team gave me was that he said he never watched the video before he committed the autopsy, uh, did the autopsy because he didn't want it to be to influence him and in what his outcome was, which that like really was like, wow, that's interesting. So he doesn't even know or he hasn't seen it with his own eyes until I think after the fact. But look, the three of us know the Supreme Court of the United States of America takes less than 100 cases a year. There are certain cases with, that they have to take, like when two jurisdictions, like two different states uh, in federal court are ruling differently. The second department, the second circuit has a different ruling than the third circuit. They kind of have to take that. Here, they have to find four justices to say, okay, we're going to take this case because it has such a profound influ- uh, impact on the laws of the United States of America that we're going to take it. I don't see that burning legal issue here that they're going to put their neck put their neck in the middle of this.
You know, you know, I will say I'll make an argument of why they should. And I understand that they, they probably won't because they, they don't want to be particularly bold, the U.S. Supreme Court. They, they like to not touch the hot buttons if they can get away with it. But this is a growing trend in America, trial by media, you know, trial for, but for social justice, not for actual justice. And if they actually took this case and reversed it, saying this guy did not get a fair trial, the court of public opinion had hanged him before he ever stepped foot in that courtroom. And this was a DA and an AG on a quest for social justice, not actual justice. That's not the United States of America. It actually would send a very powerful message down to all all courts, criminal and civil, uh, on don't go this road. This road. We're not going to support you. And we don't care if people don't like us. But John, let me jump back to some of the evidence that was admitted before the jury, because this is not going to be helpful to Derek Chauvin's request for a new trial or trying to use this woman's deposition as like, you know, the new Holy Grail. As you pointed out, his lawyer, uh, Eric Nelson, Chauvin's lawyer, did get some of these points in before the jury. Now that's the kind of stuff any appellate judge will look at. Because the appellate mm-hmm. judges want to wiggle out of changing the verdict. They don't They don't like changing verdicts. So if they have any reason to right. say, this is all brought up in front of the jury and you, blew, you muffed it, then they'll do that. So here's what happened when they had Andrew Baker on the stand, the medical examiner. And uh, Nelson was cross-examining him, April 2021. Uh, here it is, SOT 20. Let's play it. In terms of the placement of Mr. Chauvin's knee, um, would that explain anatomically why Mr. Floyd, would that anatomically cut off Mr. Floyd's airway? In my opinion, it would not. So that was a great admission that Nelson got, that the knee would not have cut off airflow to George Floyd. The jury didn't care. Mm-hmm. Right, which goes along with the very ahead, basis, the very basis of the appeal is is that, right? The very basis of the, of the appeal is because you didn't allow us to change a venue, this was a, a conviction was a foregone conclusion because the jurors did not want their houses burned down. They didn't want their families stoned. They didn't want any of that. And the fact that a jury can ignore solid evidence from an ME, this isn't even a hired gun, so to speak. This isn't a quote unquote expert that any side can hire. This is the guy that works for the state that that does this for a living, that works for the state, giving information that is basically contrary to the state's case and the jury still rejected it. What does that tell you about the tenor? And you know what I find very interesting? If we believe the information in the the deposition that's ancillary to all of this, where the ME was basically saying without saying it, don't make me do this because I, I still want my job. Don't make me say what really happened here because it's not a safe environment if I do. Do you think 12 strangers aren't going to have the same fear. If, if a professional, if a seasoned professional is afraid to tell it like it is, do you think 12 jurors are going to be bold enough to find so Derek Chauvin not guilty? No You're way. You're so right. Because he ended it, just as a reminder, he did end it according to this woman's deposition. Again, Amy's Sweezy's deposition, the medical examiner ended, ended it with, um, the, the evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative. This is the kind of case that ends careers. It ends careers. Well, it already ended the career of Derek Chauvin. And he, I remember 
watching that video over and over and over again. George Floyd down on the concrete right next to a car. Derek Chauvin with his knee, it looked like over on his throat. But I remember the close-ups when the cameras would kind of go around a little bit and look. His knee was not touching George Floyd. And Floyd was talking. He was crying out. He was hollering. And by the way, we know what killed George Floyd. The medical examiner did the blood testing and said his body was full of illegal drugs, especially fentanyl. Now think about Derek Chauvin. No question he did some things then that looking back he would never do again. But I don't see any evidence that he killed George Floyd. And the saddest thing about it, the reason I wanted you to hear that, that conversation between Megyn Kelly and those two other attorneys, was this point. How many people in American history have ended up going to jail? How many death sentences have been carried out? People that were tried by a jury of their peers and found guilty of the most heinous acts that any human being can commit on another human being, murder, rape, all kinds of things. The evidence did not find them guilty, but the social outrage found juries that had to, they didn't want to get, like Megyn Kelly said, they didn't want their homes to be burned, protesters there beating them up or their kids harassing them. They didn't want to do it. So they ignored evidence and sent this cop to prison for 20 years. His life will never be the same. Now, I know there's a bunch of police men and women around this nation that have done really bad things. In fact, I hate it. I know it certainly happens, and many times policemen They become policemen because they like having power over other people. I don't know the numbers. I don't know the split. And I believe it's far more people get and do the job because they want to serve their communities. I believe that. But all of that rolled in. Just because somebody gets tried and is convicted, it doesn't always mean that they were convicted righteously. And in this case, I think the reason Derek Chauvin was convicted and tried, uh, was tried and convicted and is in prison today was because of the social outrage. Look what the terrorists, and they were nothing but terrorists, thugs and terrorists did to that part of Minneapolis. I'll never forget the interview with a young African-American couple. He was a fireman. They saved up all their money. He took his retirement money from the fire department and they opened up, they built out a coffee shop in that part of Minneapolis. They spent every dollar they had getting it ready to open and go into business. And in that aftermath of this George Floyd terror that happened, they lost everything. 
They lost everything. They hadn't yet insured it. It hadn't opened yet. They were in the process of getting insurance, but they didn't have it in place. They lost everything. And it wasn't because Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. It was because it was a racial thing. It was a black man, and Derek Chauvin was looming over George Floyd on that street with Floyd handcuffed face down. Nobody won that. Nobody won it. Chauvin definitely didn't win it, nor did George Floyd. He's dead. Chauvin might as well be. His life was taken away from him. Maybe, I hope the Supreme Court will take this case up and get the facts out there. And they may see things that don't justify a retrial going back. And even if there's a retrial, it doesn't mean that Chauvin's going to get adjudicated to have been uh, innocent of that. But at least all of the trails of evidence would have been followed and a jury of his peers would make their choices of guilty or innocent based on facts. Let's move across to the eastern part of the nation, just outside Washington, D.C., Loudoun County, Virginia. You'll never forget about that county, will you? That's where the uproar happened with Loudoun County Public Schools. Remember that? Ugly scenes at board meetings, school board meetings, following a May 2021 sexual assault by a boy in a girl's bathroom at one school. He was self-identifying as a woman, as a female, and he goes into the female bathroom and rapes a student. And the school board, the action that they took, they transferred him to another school, and the same thing happened again. So the nation... The cops, everybody got involved in it. But there's something else going on right now in Loudoun County. A new policy, officially termed 8040, has been approved 7-2 to two by the school board, and it allows transgender students to use the bathrooms and locker rooms of their choice. Now, I thought we were over that. The uh, superintendent of schools was fired over all of this. So, on Wednesday, a group of students at Woodgrove High School in Loudoun County in Purcellville marched out of class in protest of AD 40, arguing that it made them feel unsafe. It was unclear why the protest was staged now. It's a massive safety risk, and they, the Loudoun County public school board, don't do anything about it, one female student said. I thought this was all gone away and resolved, right? She told Seven News they were tired of being completely ignored by the school district. We express these concerns. They ignore us, write us off as right-wing crazies. We're not crazy. We just don't want to be in danger on a daily basis in this building. I think it's people finally stepping up and just being sick of it all. We're sick of being here and just being completely ignored. She said, the student said she felt her concerns were widely shared. I stopped using them, the bathrooms, because I don't know what's going to happen to me in there, she said. People can be like, oh, well, that's paranoia. 
I'm telling you right now, half the women in this building feel the same way. We don't use the school bathrooms. We hold our pee until we can't. I mean, there are girls in phys ed who still get changed in the bathroom stalls in there because they're afraid of who might waltz in. A male student said he didn't want to share the locker room with students who were born female. I'd like to be able, when I get off football practice and go put my pads away and change, not feel uncomfortable with the other genders in there watching me. This is a guy telling 7 News this. I feel that girls feel the same way about the situation. How would you feel if you were a girl changing with a man? And another male student agreed. In the locker rooms in the morning, it's an invasion of privacy, as I said, because when men and natural-born males are in our locker rooms, they're showering in the morning, natural-born females can walk in there as they please, he said. And that's not okay, and it goes against what we believe. Students were met by a small group of counter-protesters that included some adults, by the way, who said they felt people should be able to use a bathroom of their choice. I'm here to support all of the kids, said one adult, no matter who they are, yours, mine, all of them. Students said more wanted to join the protest but were warned by their teachers not to. One reporter approached Woodgrove High and Loudoun County Public Schools for comment. Nobody has issued any kind of comment. <laughs> They're not going to say anything. They got busted the first round, right? Loudoun County has become the epicenter of rows over transgender bathrooms after that May of 2021 attack. It still is mind-boggling to me that we're having these conversations at all. Come on now. It is so stinking obvious. It follows that transgender conversation that's out there where people stand on the opposite side of the room and they scream insults at each other. And it all boils down to this one thing and one thing only. Four years ago, some of you may have been around then when we first got started with TNN Live. I had a female doctor on the show live. And she worked, her patients were primarily female. And this is right at the beginning of the transgender movement. In fact, the first time I heard about it was from this doctor. And she came on this show and we talked about sex change. We talked about self-identification by young people, about their biological or their preferred sexual label for themselves. And this doctor, I ask her at the end of it, doctor, tell me exactly how are people supposed to respond to self-identifying as some other than their biological sex? What do they do? And she said, they'll never be right. They'll never be comfortable in their lives until they understand and accept this one thing. You can't change your chromosomes and your chromosomes are the only determination of what your sex is. She was excoriated nationally. The firm that she worked in, it was a big medical firm somewhere up in the in the, the Northeast. I don't remember what city it was in. 
the interview that we did with her went viral in many parts of the media world because this was ramping up to be very, very controversial. And here we are today, four years later, and it's probably even more controversial now than it was at the beginning. She lost her job. I tried to reach out to her a couple of more times just to see if she was okay and if there was anything we could do, and she never replied or responded. We replayed that interview one time after that show that we did live, and we got so much negative feedback and hate that we said, look, it's not worth it for us. If people don't want to accept facts, that's on them. It's not on us. And I've never strayed away from having controversial people on here. You know that. We have had Dunstan Teo, the most, probably one of, if not the most wealthy cryptocurrency people on the planet. He was one of the co-founders of Bitcoin years ago. And he's brought all kinds of controversial things to this show. He doesn't care. He lives in Singapore he doesn't really care. He's a truther guy. And I've spent time face-to-face with him. We spent 10 days together last year in Africa. You remember when I did the show live in Africa for 10 days? He was there with me. Dr. Judy Mikovits has been on this show two times, two hours both times. She's one that busted Anthony Fauci for his lies about uh, all everything to do with COVID-19, how it and where it came from. And she predicted at the very beginning, before we even had a pandemic, she came on the show live and she predicted everything that Fauci foisted on you and I and every American was going to do in advance, two months in advance of it beginning. She told us, here's what he's going to do. Exactly what he ended up doing. We don't dodge controversy It's important for all of us to live our lives making our choices, not being indecisive, but every time we make a decision to either do something, not do it, change something, or leave it the same, at least we're doing it based upon facts rather than emotions, rather than social engineering, what's palatable, what is okay at the day at that particular time, what's acceptable and what's not. If every American, just Americans, if all of us, each of us would make a commitment to make sure before we say anything, do anything, make any choices and decisions that we make them based upon confirmed facts, we would miss so much of the insanity that we needlessly deal with on a day-to-day basis. You know, I thought it was odd, the uproar the last few days by the mainstream media on the financial situation with new House Speaker Mike Johnson. They were blown away. If you weren't at the top of the show, we laughed about it a lot, but (laughs) the Daily Beast went nuts on it. They can't believe he's a blue-collar guy. He has zero net worth, according to his financials, that he files as every member of Congress does every year. And he doesn't list a checking or savings account in his name or his wife's name. And that's, of course, because there are requirements of the amount, the levels of finances 
that you have to get to before you're required to report those on these statements. I thought it was humorous. And then we have a story this morning about a Democrat, a swing state Democrat who's running for the Senate and reports come out that his campaign drops thousands on a swanky resort and his personal private security. His name is Ruben Gallego from Arizona. He's making a 2024 Senate bid. He spent thousands of campaign cash on personal luxury travel, private security, fancy restaurants during the year's third fundraising quarter. Gallego brought in $3.1 million, spent $1.9 million between July the 1st and September 30th, entering the year's final fundraising period with $5 million in the bank. Now, this is according to the Federal Election Commission. His Senate campaign dropped over three grand on a resort in Puerto Rico, $2,700 on private security, $2,000 on fine dining in Washington, D.C., and thousand more on related expenses. The campaign made six payments during the month of July to the Fairmont El San Juan Hotel in Puerto Rico. Its website describes as a, quote, luxurious modern hotel that offers exciting nightlife and world-class luxury. Gallego also spent $3,417.76 at Fountain Blue, a luxury hotel in Miami Beach, $1,345.60 at the Hyatt-centric The Loop Chicago, as well as $253.56 at the LaSalle Chicago and $137.70 at Washington, D.C.'s Waldorf Astoria. Honestly, I've stayed at the Waldorf in, in Manhattan several times. 137 bucks don't go far there, I promise you. His campaign reported spending 2600 at the Hyatt Hotels across the country in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Tennessee, California, and Washington, D.C. Why am I telling you this? Look, it's simple. Nobody's exempt from this mess. The love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money isn't, money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And we just need to understand that. Wow, here we go on the weekend. Ending or getting close to the end of the regular high school football season, Evangel Christian Academy, it's where two of our grandchildren have already graduated from. Three more are graduating from there this year. And the final grandbaby is a freshman there. I do the PA at home football games there. And I love doing it. I have a ball doing it. Well, they're playing their homecoming game for this year tonight. And again, we have three grandchildren graduating this year. So there's a lot of emotions going on this week. This team is going, this this year's Evangel Christian Academy football team is going into the playoffs. If they win the game tonight, they'll have a home game next Friday night. And then the sojourn 
to South Louisiana. People don't, they think Louisiana's a little bitty thing. Where we live today, we're 340 miles away from New Orleans. And New Orleans and its surrounding areas in South and Southeast Louisiana is full of great high school football teams. So I'm telling you all of that to tell you this. You guys, you're family people. You love people just like I love people. If you're living close, same town, if you have kids at home, make sure every day you let them know you love them and care for them. Don't forget, we have our bullet points every Saturday morning. They'll be live first thing in the morning. And on Monday, we're back at it right here at TNN Live. You guys have a great weekend. And uh, make sure you're back Monday. Y'all know who it is. It's the king of that conscious rap. Young Boney Soprano, a.k.a. T-Bone. My girl Becca shape out the Blazers track right here. It's what we call revolution of dance music. Bye, on Can nobody love me
give you 